0: merciful and gracious father we as a body as a church we come to your word because that god is where you have revealed yourself to us and your son has been revealed to us through your word and the movement of the holy spirit softening our eyes and softening our hearts and opening our eyes that we can behold your son high and lifted up god and that is what we long for when we now come back to Your Word, could You make that happen right now as we seek You? Could our sins be laid before us? And may we find hope in Your Son, in Your Son alone. Amen. Children, unfortunately, do not believe in the germ theory. They have no concept of the germ theory, but they do not certainly believe this, and this is always quite evident when you take them into the bathroom. There's always parents, no, 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 don't touch that, no, no, don't touch it, and they think this toilet's some teddy bear they're supposed to hug and they carry on. you go, no, no, don't do that, don't do that. Then you also, you go into the kitchen and you tell them, no, no, don't touch that, don't touch that. And what do they do? Of course, there's a big hot red red hot pan they have to touch it right? So they touch it and, the, and their fingers are seared and they, they come to you and you go I warned you I warned you don't do that well, I know I know I know so thankfully we have these science has given us this modern of marvel science. we have essential oils now that we can put on the birds and they're fine though so everything's going to be okay but these warnings are the same thing that we had in the Old Testament we told them, Watch out for the kings. Beware of the kings. You want some kings, beware the kings. What are they going to do? They're going to they're take your daughters. They're going to take your sons. They're going to go be, uh, work in your homes. They're going to go out and fight in your wars. They're going to take your crops. They're going to take your land and anything that's left over. You might have some money. Well, they're going to take that as well. And the king is dangerous as a king Because by his position, he has absolute authority over your lives. Now, if only there was someone who held that authority, not only by position of being the true king, but also by merit because of what he had done and what he, and who he was. Someone who would come riding in valiantly and and expel and get rid of all of the enemies. And cast them out. And that is what we behold in our text here this morning. It's the king who has come on and cast out all the enemies of God. And then you also see him bringing judgment. So the main idea that we're going to be driving home is that Jesus, not was, not will be, but Jesus is the reigning king. Jesus is The reigning king. You see the procession of the king, verses 1 through 11, the triumphal entry of Christ coming into Jerusalem. The verses 12 through 16, the justice of the king. And then finally, at the end here, verses 17 through 22, you see the judgment of the king. The procession of the king, the justice of this reigning king, and then finally, the judgment of this king. Now, over this past year, we've, we've seen in this, this Gospel of Matthew that he's been building and demonstrating what it is of, to be this, this Christ, this king in his kingdom. And in our minds, when we think of kings, we're drawn to page one of a fairy tale, basically. There once upon a time, there was a king. And that's how we think of them. And we're drawn in. We want to know, was he a good king or was he an evil king? Was this empire, was it safe or were they going to be invaded from the north? And when, this is especially true here in America and in the west. So we, we got rid of George the we, third. We got, we were 1776. We broke free and we've been free from kings ever since. And we don't have a, a rightful fear of these kings or political leaders. So what do we do now? We, we mock them, right? So if you're on the left, you joyously mock your president, right? And if you're on the right, well, then you mock Congress. And either in two or four or six years, everything is going to reshuffle. And then we'll, to our own shame, we'll continue mocking those who God has placed in authority above us. So when we, we get to the text here, Let us keep in mind what a true king is. He's not just a political figure that is to be mocked on social media, but rather he is the one to whom we must be obedient. So with that in mind, let's let's see this, this gospel in Matthew. It begins to unfold and it's unfolding and it's, this begins with Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, yeah, Jacob, Jacob yeah, Judah, and it goes and it builds and it's centered around these kings right in the middle, especially King David. And it's built around this idea of kingship and this kingdom. And so Christ comes and the first words of his ministry are what? Repent. Why? Why do we repent? For, <laughs> repent for, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's unfolding and we see this king and how he has true dominion over everything. Over the spiritual forces, demons, he's casting them out, putting them in swine, and they go cascading down the hill into the sea. Not only that, but he has authority and dominion over the natural realm as well. The calming storms and everything else. Even death. He has dominion over death. This true king has dominion over death. So he goes to Jairus' daughter and says, Talitha whom?" and she takes her gently by the hand, as Matthew writes, and she's brought back from the dead. So that's the king, but then you also see his kingdom is unlike anything we've ever seen. It's a place where actually the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And it's a place that we don't practice our righteousness out in the open before us. But actually, so what do we do? We go to our we go to our closet and we go and pray there. And then our Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward us. And we we don't store up for ourselves treasures here on earth, where moths and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. As we see this this unique, all-powerful king and his kingdom, and right now in our text, we're coming to this pivotal point where everything is going to change. We're entering in these last chapters, entering into this last week, and it's beginning. So with that in mind, let's go back to the text and see this triumphal king coming in to establish once and for all his kingdom. Let's go back and read verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. And tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Simple simple obedience. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And here you see the city of David, adorned as a bride to welcome in her king. And what does Christ do? He he procures himself, not a chariot, not a horse to ride in. You'd see see these, these kings like King Cyrus riding into Babylon in 539. What does he do? He rides in on his chariot with pomp and circumstance. But no, what does he do? He rides in on a colt. Not even a donkey, but the, the fool, the baby of a donkey. He comes riding in on that. And the crowds are amassing as he it leaves Bethany and Bethage. And he comes down to Jerusalem, going over the Mount of Olives. And you ascend up and see the city and go back down in between the hills. And it disappears from your view. till finally you come up again on the western slope, of the Mount of Olives. And you behold the city of David, Jerusalem. And this excitement among the crowd is growing in fever and pitch. And there's nothing that the people will not do to welcome their king. So if you also remember in the Gospel of John, this is right after, right after Jesus has raised Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead. So he has a lot of people that are coming around being excited about this. And there are also the crowds, you'll see in John, that it's also the crowds that have been with him around the Sea of Galilee for the last three years, seeing his ministry, seeing what he's been doing, they are now with him as he's coming down and going into Jerusalem. And so what are the crowds doing? It says most of the crowds are spreading their cloaks. They're taking off this cloak and they're spreading it on the road before Christ. And what is this? This is a sign of absolute, absolute submission to the King. This is the, the same thing, you go to 2 Kings 9, when Jehu becomes king of, of the northern ten tribes in Israel. It says, Then in haste every man took from him his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. This sign of all that I have is down here before you. Go ahead and do whatever you will. Just trample on it. That's fine. It is in submission to you. And what is this? This is a foretaste, is it not? This is a foretaste of Christ having dominion, absolute dominion over all things in this earth. So you go go to Ephesians 1. It says that God the Father, when he, He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand, Far above all ruler, authority, power, and dominion. gave him the name that is above every name, not only in this age, but in the next. And put all things under his feet. Same thing you see in 1 Corinthians 15 when it says, For Christ, for he, must reign until when? He has put all of his enemies under his feet. Philippians 2, you see that, Therefore... God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus, what? That Jesus is Lord. True dominion over everything, that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. You also see the crowds not only physically throwing all that they have and casting it under Christ, but what are they doing? Crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This, this cry of Hosanna to, to save. Save now. This emphatic plea for them to be saved. They don't say that to anyone else. No, they say that to only the one who can save them, right? You don't save that. You don't go saying that to anyone else unless you believe that they can save you, truly, truly save you. And this, they're not crying it out to the son of Mary and Joseph, but no, it's crying this out to Hosanna to the Son of David. So we think David, this king, this this one. Remember in Second Samuel seven that David was promised that his kingdom would reign forever and ever, that there was a seed coming from him that would rule forever and ever, that God would establish the throne of His kingdom forever, that He is the Son of David, the, the one from, from Judah, the one from whom the scepter shall not depart. And He comes in the name of the Lord bringing this authority from God, from God alone, coming down and bringing this authority and establishing this eternal kingdom. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, then it's, it's no wonder. Is it? well, it's, it's no wonder that they, they cast all that they have, their cloaks, they cast all that they have down to the ground before him. But what about you? What are you holding on to? Do you not see that this is not just for them? No, this is for you as well. Everything of your life is to be cast down at the feet of Jesus. Everything in your life is to be subservient to Jesus. Your career, cast it at the feet of Jesus. laid at the feet of Jesus. Your children, there they are, laid before Christ your career, all of your aspirations, whatever you want to do, laid before Christ. Some of you want to be missionaries. Don't fall prey to the comfort that Mother Mayo can give you and a nice retirement. No, do not do that. But lay it all at the feet of Jesus. All that you have must be laid before Him. If you want to be a part, there's no gray area here. If you want to be a part of the kingdom, you have absolute allegiance to the king of all kings. There's no middle ground here. Are you gonna hold on to this, hold on to that? Oh, he can have 90%, well that's good. Well then go ahead and spend 10% in heaven, 10% in hell. No, it doesn't work, my friend absolute allegiance to the king. Why? Because he is king. And he demands it of you. He's not someone to be mocked as social media as we think of our rulers. No. He demands it. Demands it of you. So I I hope that you see that Jesus is, not will be, not was, but Jesus is the reigning king. We've seen him come in and everybody around him is Casting all that they have before him. Unfortunately, though, as we'll see in our text next, this is not the reaction of everyone. Let's go back to the text. We'll read verses, uh, just 12 and 13 for now. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, it is written, my house shall not be, my house shall be a, called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so here is Christ. He's, he's on the full, the baby donkey, coming down the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, going around the top of the Kidron Valley, and then going into the eastern gate, eastern side of, of Jerusalem here. And Adam, we were talking in office, and Adam made a great point this week. He's noticed where he didn't go? He didn't go to Herod's palace. Why? He's not establishing a kingdom of this world. But where did he go? Oh, he goes right to the temple. He goes right to the temple, the home, the former home of his father. Why? Because he's establishing this heavenly kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls out. And this this temple, it was the center of, of religious activity. Was it not? So sacrifices that are made in obedience to God, where do you do it? You go to the temple. Taxes are paid. Where? A lot of them. At the temple. Your devotion to God and your cultural identity centered around the temple. So who you were And what God expected of you, centered around the temple. And here is Christ going in. And it's the only place, it was the very place where where God had once dwelled with his people. And this is what set apart the Hebrew people from from everybody else. The people of God, you. It's what separates us from everybody else. So other people, they would have a temple Of holding a God which they had made. Ah, the people of God. No, they would go to a temple and worship the God who had what? Who had made them. So rather than exercising control, you come in reverent awe, knowing that the very one who's created the world that's holding the stars in places and they dance around us. This very God who has created you and gives you life and breath In Him we live and move and have our being. This very God is the one you would come to worship at the temple. And Christ comes and what does He find? He finds what is detesting to the nature and to the character of God. It's a place where God's charity should abound, right? Right? But no, what did you find? It would become a home of of thieves and robbers. As a Jew, you would have to pay your half-shekel temple tax, which wasn't a lot, Uh, but you'd have to pay it in a shekel. Because if you'd come from somewhere else, you'd undoubtedly have a a currency from your hometown, from your area, and it would have the image of a pagan deity on it, which obviously is not acceptable at the temple. So you'd have to have a shekel. So you pay your half-shekel temple tax. So in order to get from what you had to a shekel, you had to go through a money changer. And of course, you can see that it was just right for people to take advantage of of the poor who have further impoverished themselves by making this long trek. They don't have the currency of of the shekel. And so as you exchange their currency, you, you... Take advantage of them, of those who aren't able to defend themselves in their weakest moments when they're away from home. And you know what they have, and it's not very much, but you help yourself. And if there's a little bit left, you go, oh well, I know you're poor, right? So you don't have to buy a bull, you don't have to buy a ram for a sacrifice, but pigeons will do. But oh, those pigeons that you brought, they're not really good enough. I don't—they haven't been inspected, have they? Oh, no, of course not. Well, they're not good enough for here. Buy these. These have been inspected. Well, of course you're going to sacrifice to God. You're going to come and give them those pigeons? No. Buy these. And they charge this inflated price for something that should be nearly free, further impoverishing them. And so it's no wonder that Christ comes in, comes into the city, lowly, humble, riding on the donkey, but he comes into the temple and the zeal of the Lord consumes him. And he overturns these tables and he kicks them out. So go up a several verses above and we'll see a little more context of what's going on. Go up several verses. You see this, this prophecy out of Zechariah. It says, say to the daughter of Zion, verse 5, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a beast of burden. Well, that, well that's obviously fulfilled. When he's riding in, on the, on the colt, on the foal, a beast of burden. But in this, this greater context of what's going on in Zechariah, in the Old Testament, this prophet, uh, within these, this chapter here, he's pronouncing judgment upon those people who have been oppressing the people of God. So Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Gaza, Ekron, All of these cities who have been coming in and oppressing the people of God. Zechariah is announcing judgment upon them. And read what he says, the previous verse, right before what we have in verse 5. So it would be chapter 9, verse 8 from Zechariah. It says, Then I will encamp at my house. What's his house? The temple. Then I will encamp at my house, the temple, as a guard, and that is Christ so that no one shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. So here is Christ encamped at the house, which is the temple. And they're making the parallel. The parallel that's going on is that these money changers and these people extorting money out of Those who seek to be devoted to God, are they're parallel. They're acting as though they are the foreign enemies, the foreign armies coming in to oppress the people of God. So they pray for deliverance and pray for deliverance and pray for deliverance throughout the centuries, don't they? They don't realize. They themselves are the ones doing the oppressing. Thus the house of God, this house of prayer, has become a den of robbers. And there, there couldn't be a greater contrast that's going on between the, the religious elites, the, the pastors, the seminary professors, the people who walk around and look really, really religious and really, really important, right? There couldn't be a greater contrast between them and what we see next. The blind and the lame coming to him. What does He do? He heals them. And then, not only that, it's not only the blind and lame, okay, okay, but then you get a couple rungs socially even lower and the, the children just wandering around amongst the temple and the crowds. The chief priest and the scribes, they are indignant when they see this. The children are coming out and crying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. And the same choice that was before them is the same choice that is now before you, is it not? Who will you be like? Will you be like the, the chief priest and the scribe? They saw the wonderful things that God had done, but when they hear children crying out and praise to God, their hearts become indignant and become hard. Or will you be like these children who just unashamedly, with no reservation whatsoever, give forth praise to God? What will you be like? Do you want the praise of men and women now? That's what the chief and that's what the scribes got. Is that what you want? Is that what your career is oriented towards? The praise of men, the praise of women? Is that your great endeavor in life? Maybe not in the religious sphere. Oh, you can, you can put that aside when you leave church, but then when you go to work or when you're in your family, do you want to be high and lifted up? Is that what you want? Or maybe even outside of church, you can be free with your praise of God crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. The chief priests and the scribes, they, John said, they love their praise of men rather than the praise of God. And what was held before them is held before us today. Do not, my friends, do not harden your heart. When you see the work of God, you have it right here in your text. You see the work of God amongst you guys in your community groups. You see the work of God among you. Do not harden your hearts do not harden your heart any longer. Do not fall under this justice and this judgment of God. What we see for beheld before us is a call to repent. We must, we must repent. But it's not only for us to repent, but we must be the ones to bring this call to repent amongst the city and go out into the city. But Sure, maybe they're going to be like the chief priests. Sure, maybe they're going to be like the scribes. And they might not repent. Might not repent. And if they want to go to hell, well, that's their own prerogative. Well, the dispersion would say, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with their arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. That is the call that is held before you. Not only to repent, but to go into this city that God has made for you. To declare the kingdom of God. To call and cast all that we have before Him. That is for us, but that is for others as well. And if you have not returned, repented from your sins, do not wait another minute. Do not be like the chief priests and the scribes. They don't have any more time. Their lot has been cast. Do not go on presuming upon the goodness of God any longer. Because this king, we're seeing that Christ is this king, this reigning king, over his kingdom. And they they have their cloaks, are casting before him, but that's not enough. So they call some palm branches, and they're waving it upon him. And they're crying out in praises. But those who refuse, They see it just as you see it. But they refuse to obey and worship the king. Well, then what do they do? They fall under the judgment that we will see here. Let's read verses. We'll just do 17 through 19 here. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning he was returning to the city, going back east, back to Jerusalem, and he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. The fig tree withered at once. And this fig tree, if you read in Deuteronomy 8 and other places in the Old Testament, the fig tree is what? It's a picture of God sustaining and God blessing the people of God, the blessing Israel. But now, what do you see of this fig tree? It's barren. It has no fruit. Israel has no fruit, and it is Israel, this barren fig tree, whose leaves cover her, w- her nakedness. It's hearkening us back to Genesis 3. There's nothing but sin that needs to be covered with the leaves of a fig tree. And of course, this lack of fruit will bring... There's a vacuum. It's going to be filled, right? You engineers. It's going to be filled, and it's filled with the judgment of God. And so it comes forth. It says, May no fruit ever come from you again. And immediately, immediately tree. withers. Leaves or fruit? Leaves or fruit? What is your life? The temple, it was filled with religious leaders doing really, really important religious things. Really busy guys doing really, really important things. They had their religious activities. So prayers Oh, yes, they're loud and by the dozen. Sacrifices, sure. Kosher, only the best. Synagogue, oh, every day. And I recite the readings before they even say them. But they had no fruit. They had only leaves. And so the same thing is true with many people coming to church. We use the church as this fig leaf to cover our spiritual nakedness. That we have no fruit. We only have leaves. But the King of kings and the Lord of Lord, he doesn't want your religiosity. No, he doesn't. Don't you know that the judgment came upon really, really religious people who were doing great things, so they thought, in the temple. But they had no fruit. So sure, they might have looked great. But they had no genuine fruit from the Spirit of God working through them. So they had the judgment of God fall upon them. And within a generation, the temple would be laid flat. Blood would be flowing through the city's streets of Jerusalem as a river. Knee high. Blood flowing. The city is laid to waste. Because they had leaves. Sure, they looked great. They had no fruit. So I plead with you, my friends, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves, as Paul would say, to see whether you are in the faith. You have leaves? Who cares? You look good? Who cares? Do you have fruit? Do you have fruit? Do you have fruit that testifies that Jesus Christ is the reigning king, the one who has come in lowly, humble on a donkey, the one who has come in and is establishing his kingdom and will have dominion over his kingdom. But not only his kingdom, but your heart as well. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we get so distracted and we lift high those people that have leaves and they look great and they look as though they have everything together. God, I pray that we would not lift them up. But God, could we look to those children who were nearly abandoned by their parents and just running around crying out your praises. God, could that be our longing to be like them? that we will be completely abandoned in all sensibility just to cry out our praises to you, God. Could you work that in our hearts, and work that in our children's hearts, and work that in the people around this city, God, and use us and use this church to declare the glory of your King, to declare the glory of your eternal kingdom. Amen.